What's up, everybody? You're listening to No Coast Cinema here on WGM Plus, your guide to cinema here in the city of Chicago. And uh, it's time for one of my favorite things to do, which is the No Coast Board of Review. Uh, I'm your board chairman, Tom Hush, and uh, joining me is one of our esteemed board members, Mr. Matt Zapola. He is a fantastic film critic, one of the best young film critics out there, and a very good friend of the show. Matt, thanks so much for joining us again. Hi, yeah, yeah. Uh, so we've got a lot to talk about. I think, um, I have to say as, as a month in general, September, not, not too bad. I, I was, especially after our conversation about August, uh, which I thought was really, (laughs) I, I listened back to it and I'm just like, wow, we had very little good to say about what was happening in August. I think, um, September was pretty good. Would you agree? Yeah, it was, I mean, it was about what you'd expect, if not better. So. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's. I feel like we're in this period of time where we're waiting to get to the prestige films. You know, we've got uh, A Star Is Born opening uh, this week, mm-hmm. um, and it's already it's already experiencing rave reviews. Uh, First Man is also coming this month. Um, and on the genre side for the horror fans, we've got the, uh, Halloween soft reboot kind of retcon from David Gordon Green, one of the most interesting filmmakers, uh, or in terms of career and what he's done, um, one of the most interesting filmmakers, um, working right now, but let's look at September. Um, I, there were some movies that I really had high hopes for and I thought we're going to be good. But let's start off with one that I thought was uh, truly the definition of unnecessary. And an example, I think the only better example of, uh, or the better, the only better case against connected film universes is maybe Tom Cruise's The Mummy. This comes very close after that. Like this whole idea of cinematic universes that Marvel brought to us, um, is really running awry in terms of quality. Uh, obviously, the film we're going to talk about here is part of a extremely, extremely successful horror franchise. Of course, uh, we're talking about The Nun, which is the latest entry in the Conjuring cinematic universe. Uh, are you a fan of the Conjuring movies? Or even if not a fan, like what, what are your feelings on that whole franchise? I liked the first two main films. I think those are the only ones I saw. I didn't see either Annabelle, and those are the only ones there's so far, right? Yeah, I, I haven't seen any of the uh, other two spinoff films so far. Um, I really liked the first one. I thought the second one was also solid. That was about the extent of that. They were just effective and not a ton more than that, but I enjoyed them. Mm-hmm. I'd, I'd have to agree with at least the the main Conjuring film. So Conjuring 1 and 2. Mm-hmm. I think they're decent. They're of a style that I don't particularly enjoy when it comes to horror. Um, although, as the great uh, music and film critic Tom Brayen has said before, respect motherfucking craft. Um, I have to give it up for... As James Wan, correct, who did both yeah. the Conjuring yeah, I have to respect what he's what he's accomplished. Um, I think they're, as you said, effective. Um, just not particularly for me. I have to really put myself in the whole like, okay, so 
you know, put myself in the shoes of the average moviegoer who doesn't have an obsession with like more obscure classics like Suspiria or like, I don't know, and literally any other horror movie other than this kind of pop horror that's come out of, uh, I would say starting with Paranormal Activity. Like that's some real pop horror sure. um, stuff that people are just like, oh, I'm going to get so scared. Oh, I can't. Oh, no. Uh, so you said this is the first of the spinoff films from The Conjuring that you've seen. The mm-hmm. other two being uh, Annabelle and Annabelle Creation. Yeah. Both of which I was just like, why? I, I wasn't, there was no real interest for me. I was like, I don't really need to know why these things exist. It, it kind of goes against the horror element for me. Like, yeah. how, did, how, how did that work for you with the nun? I mean, it was, that was the main thing. It was such a, uh, the whole thing was just such a reach. I mean, you have a peripheral character from the second film that is essentially being, shoehorned into its own feature as a main antagonist and so you have to craft and retcon this entire mythology that is increasingly contrived and no one cares um (laughs) i just i don't see the point of it other than trying to squeeze out a few hundred million which they did successfully because globally it's now the most successful film in the franchise but it's it's so hollow and it's boring and it's when it's not boring it's kind of maddening in terms of how it tries to mash together really odd comic relief and it's it's quite short i think it's around an hour and a half but it feels way longer um but it's and it's even the sort of stuff that you would at least expect from this franchise or films of this ilk don't really play out like there's some very inconsistent makeup effects that look really shoddy. Um, There are some really, really odd choices in the visual effects, both in terms of when they chose to use visual effects. And then also some of those effects seem really under rendered. Um, And then it all just sort of boils together into a stew that by the time it concludes, you're just, it's, I I mean, I don't know if I would say it's incoherent because that implies that there is some sort of main narrative, (laughs) whereas anything here just sort of it, it, I just, it's just, it exists, I guess. Yeah. Barely, but it's there. It's, it's a total, uh, it's that pop horror, just like really ramping up the marketing and making you, it's, it's, I would almost say that with a movie like the nun, they have to convince you it's scary before you even go in. Yeah. Because it's not actually scary. It's, it's surprising in so far as it has jump scares and there's like some, you know, like um, everybody loves religious iconography when it comes to horror because it does, you know, it does something to our brain. And um, I mean, I think, hands down the scariest movie ever made, which is the exorcist. In my opinion, scariest movie ever made part of that comes from the subversion or the, or the, rather the perversion of religious iconography. That's part of the horror. Right. So, you know, they're, they're hitting the marks there. They're just like, Oh yeah, no, we got to have an upside down cross. People will be like, Oh no. Like, uh, but I find it, I find it interesting that you also picked up on the, uh, effects because, a lot of great horror lives and dies by its effects. And um, 
I feel like horror has always been a genre where people who work in makeup and, you know, kind of design those, those artistic nuts and bolts of making the movie look a certain way. It's where they get to shine. You get some of the biggest names in, in special effects, your Stan Winston's, um, your guys like that who all came up through horror because they were just like, hey, we have to make something that doesn't actually exist exist and it needs to be frightening and it needs to um, play on all these fears. And as you said, the nun's effects are when they're CG, they're under rendered. They, mm-hmm. they look so fake. Um, and when it comes to the makeup, it's again, as you said, inconsistent and it seems just totally off. It seems like they really just pushed this one out, which is sad. I, I want to say uh, the conjuring films are Blumhouse, correct? New line. Uh, oh, they're new line. Okay. Never mind. Yeah. Cause I, I mean, Blumhouse has pushed out some real stinkers before, but like, this is, this is just franchise horror. And this, this is like, this makes me think of, uh, the real Nadir of like the Halloween franchise, uh, Friday the 13th, um, you know, the, uh, nightmare on Elm street. When you get to this point where the genre is just so played out, like when this, like when slasher film comes in and it's like a, huge revelation like when the birth the the birth of the slasher with halloween in 1978 reinvigorates horror and then it just totally runs itself into the ground and i feel like that's where we're getting with paranormal horror like this um Mm -hmm. 2000s paranormal horror which i guess you could kind of trace back all the way to something like the blair witch um i feel like a lot of these are very blair witch inspired in a sense with uh the way that they uh, treat jumps and uh, the building of tension, but nowhere near as effectively as the Blair Witch Project. I don't know if that's a if if I'm talking out of my ass here. Oh no, 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 that makes sense. I mean, the thing is, you can tell that these movies are not necessarily copying what the films of the early 2000s were inspired by. They're just copying the films of the early 2000s. Yeah. So there's like this there's a law of diminishing returns and just everything sort of like exponentially decreases as they copy it more and more and more. And that's to be expected, but I just, especially at this point in time where the, this, I mean, this boom of paranormal horror started, you're looking back like the the current state that we're in, this started 11 years ago. Yeah. Um, And it's just, there's, and I'm surprised we haven't reached, to be honest, I'm surprised we haven't reached a, you know, the obligatory dive into self-aware horror for this subgenre by now. Um, yeah, where, where's Scream? Yeah, that's, yeah, exactly. I, I mean, I'm sure I'd be down for that because I'm just always down for stuff like that. But I mean, it's, it is something that is overstated its welcome. I mean, I'll keep chugging along with it. Um, just in the event that something awesome comes out, but <sighs> well, and it's, it's such a, it's such a product of this kind of postmodern self-reference. Yeah. Um, Cause it's just like, it's like, you're just making movies out of throwaway shit. Like Annabelle is like kind of creepy. And it, it, I mean, within the context of the original conjuring, there's a bit of world building there. It ha- it serves a, it, it seems to be a bit of a character, 
moment when they introduce the idea of Annabelle and being like, hey, uh, these characters have been at this for a while. They've seen some serious shit. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't, I don't hate the idea of having these artifacts because it, it builds out a little bit of um, Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmiga's characters and gives them this uh, history, which builds their credibility for the current situation. You know, it's decent um character building and world building but it's like do we really need to know how annabelle got there it's like who the fuck cares it's there and it's this it's this tendency for uh people to over explain things especially in this world where you can just make a movie out of like self-reference um And, you know, prove that it's financially viable, especially through th- even like the Star, like Solo, a Star Wars story, which I I think is a movie that gets a bit uh, over criticized. I think it's a perfectly decent movie, but its existence is fucked up by the fact that it's like, wait, you're telling me that you made an entire two hour feature out of one line in star yeah. Wars from 1977. And it's just, Oh, we made the Kessel run and you know, X, Y, Z parsecs. And they made an entire movie about that essentially. Yeah. Uh, or rogue one, um, which is like, Oh yeah, this is how we got the star Wars plans. I don't think people realize the idea of like, they think they see it as a loose thread as like just a loose end of, of narrative, but it really isn't. It's just in of itself exists and is just merely a detail to build something out, but you don't need to go into it because it really doesn't matter. And as we've seen with all these different um, franchise spinoffs, whether it's star Wars or the conjuring or Marvel, like, you know, no one really gives a shit about the inhumans. No one's going to watch the inhumans on ABC because no one cares. It doesn't matter. But that's a, you know, I I really hated this movie. I I think on um, I've I've gone back and using Letterboxd. I know you're like <laughs> the king of Letterboxd, and I think I gave it like a one star. There's like maybe two or three movies that I've ever put logged onto Letterboxd that I've given one star, and this was just a legitimately total mess of a movie. Um, I want to hop from one mess to another. Uh, the Predator. Oh yeah. Which really upsets me because, as listeners of the show know, uh, Connor and I are huge Predator fans. I own all the Predator movies, even the Alien vs. Predator ones. And um, there's just something about that franchise that I find to be like super endearing in, yeah, in sure. every way. Uh, you know, the first one is a, cl- a classic of the genre, uh, really a staple of the idea of the eighties action movie, um, and of Arnold Schwarzenegger's career. The, you got predator two, which is just like very, it's so nineties. Like it's very of its time and it doesn't exactly reinvent the wheel, but I think is kind of a cult gem when it comes to sequels. Um, predators, uh, which was Robert Rodriguez producing and Nimrod on tall. I, I could go on forever, but I've always found it to be an interesting franchise that uh, people totally know and love, despite maybe never having seen any of those movies or even, or only having seen like small bits of it. Sure. And so that's why they're still able to pump out a predator movie roughly every 
10 to 20 years, somewhere between somewhere in that time frame, you can get a, a new predator movie. Um, this one is the shortest distance between a predator movie. Uh, so predators came out in 2010. This is 2018. So only eight years, which is really very short for a franchise that's been, uh, operating since 1987. Um, and, this one directed, written, written and directed by Shane Black, uh, who starred in the, he was in the original Predator. Um, he's a guy that I've always really respected when it comes to writing action films. He knows exactly what he's about. Problematic guy, very problematic guy. And even yeah. with this, with this movie, you know, there's a lot of controversy surrounding it uh, regarding his casting of a friend who is a registered sex offender. Yeah. And, uh, so, but like, I, I take Shane Black usually about face value. Um, sure. Kiss, Kiss, Bang, Bang, and The Nice Guys are two of my favorite, like, kind of sleeper hits of their respective years. Um, really well-crafted uh, crime, just genre crime movies and uh, really well-written, very funny, well-acted. This movie, I wanted to be, I wanted to be good so bad. I was like, dude, let's bring the Predator back. Let's let's make this franchise viable again. And, um, well, I mean, you saw it. Yes, I did. And it's it could have used more Predator. Um, yeah, right? For a yeah, movie called The Predator, it, there's, like, hardly any Predator. <laughs> the Predator with an article in front of it. I It could have, yeah, it could have done that. It, the main thing is that it's just, it is, well, I mean, I guess it would help people in theory if they go into it knowing that it is it is first and foremost a wacky comedy with some action sequences and that comedy is very grating and it's 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 not even so much like I I could understand if it weren't my type of humor but it's just every single actor is so at the mercy of the lines they have to deliver and that brings some varying degrees of bleh to all the performances. I mean, Keegan-Michael Key is insufferable here just because of all the stuff he has to do is completely um, intolerable. He's just like a really, he's like, he was giving me flashbacks to Mark Wahlberg in mile 22. Um, <laughs> it's, but it's, it, the thing is, it just seems so unaware of its own time in terms of its place in its own franchise, but also its place within modern cinema because it's trying so hard to emulate that sort of like eighties macho, you know, self-aware, like corny humor, but it's also throwing in these bits of, you know, that sort of like mid to late 2010 internet edgelord sort of comedy and it just feels very try hard. Um, and the thing is, it's not self-aware. It like it actually thinks it's earnestly funny. It's not being ironically funny. It actually thinks that it's amiable. And I mean, there are a bunch of running gags that don't really go anywhere. They're just sort of their surface level. I mean, everyone in the movie is essentially an archetype, um, which would be fine if that had a point. But it's they're, well, they're not so much archetypes in that way. They're more stereotypes. Um, and it's, uh, it all, you know, bleeds together into something where, you know, by the time you get to the third act, it doesn't make 
really much of any sense. And then you realize, oh, they had to reshoot this entire third act. I can tell. Um, yeah, it's well, very it's very rare that general audiences are able to tell when something has very clearly been changed. Yeah, and um, as the listeners know, I I work in a movie theater and we carried the Predator. And there were so many people we, you know, we're a small movie theater. So we like to have conversations with the customers, especially our regulars when they come in and see a movie. And there were so many people that walked out of it that were just like, like what they just asked, like what happened in the last 30 minutes? Because it just seemed to become a completely different movie that didn't follow its own premise. Like it just made zero sense like and and you know I'm not trying to call general movie going audiences stupid. They're not stupid, and studios think they're stupid. Right. I mean, obviously they're not because they yeah. can pick up on this. But it's it, the thing is, it feels like the last half hour or so becomes more of a fan fiction. But the thing is that fan fiction is now canon in how they've implemented it into the franchise, and it's there forever and ever and ever. Um, but it's 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 not too long. I think it's just shy of two hours. It feels a lot longer than that. Um, it's very it's very shoddily paced in terms of how it glues together all of its individual sequences. Um, so there isn't much of a narrative flow. And on top of that, it just isn't a ton of fun. Um, you can tell that they were kind of grasping at straws here, and it, it very much feels like. Um, a studio shadow of what Shane Black's sort of quick-witted, um, you know, multifaceted banner or banter is, um, mm-hmm. but sort of like chewed it by a machine and then also edited into a bunch of pieces, pieces and then sewn back together. Yeah, and I will say, I think I may have enjoyed it a little bit more than than you did, mm-hmm. mainly because I am such a stand for this franchise and i i mean the humor the humor was hit or miss for me like it there there was definitely some of that grating shit especially some of the lines that keegan michael key was fed and yeah I, you could just tell he want he was phoning it in he's like this is fucking stupid this isn't funny you're talking about um one of the most uh celebrated community comedians of the last I don't know, 10 to 15 years with key and peel. And even going back farther to stuff like mad TV, he's a guy, he knows comedy. He knows exactly what he's doing. And you could tell he was like, I can't believe you're making me tell this joke in 2018. Like this is really stupid, but there was like some of the camaraderie and shit between the guys, I was like, ah, there's like, there's these flashes of brilliance where I'm just like, oh man, this movie could have gone somewhere else. And we can speculate whether or not it was studio meddling or if it was Shane Black just losing his touch a little bit. It's right. really, it's really anybody's guess. But there were parts of it that I was like, okay, this is interesting. This, like, the scenario they're in is, is legitimately interesting. But, um, as you said, there's just like, it's very sloppy. The pacing is all over the place. Uh, Olivia Munn's character is basically just there. Like she gets introduced, like she's going to be important. And then she's just whisked away. Like, Nope, we don't care about what she has to do anymore. Yeah. Um, there's, and it's, I felt so bad for her. Cause it's also like going back to what I said about how all the actors, um, like their performances end up being 
you know, just completely reliant on what sort of stuff and things they have to say and do. Um, Olivia Munn is easily the best part of the movie because she is the least obnoxious. Yes. Um, but they also just, she's also just sort of like a punching bag for all sorts of, you know, inconsequential jokes. And it's, it also goes back to that sort of like faux edgy humor of like, they just try really hard to make her kind of like the hot girl, but like she's the hot girl who also like has a degree in biology. It can fire a gun. Yeah. That, and it's also, I mean, it, like that sort of humor also extends itself. There's like a weird streak in terms of how this movie treats people with any sort of like mental illness oh or disorder. God. It's uh, there's one character who has um, a very, very comical in air quotes, um, like type of Tourette's and all he'll do is just sort of like spout off obscenities. It's mostly an excuse for him to verbally harass Olivia Munn's character and then other people to be like, oh, it's okay, he can't help it. And then, like, Jacob Tremblay from Room, the little oh, kid God. from Room, he yeah. is um, the the main character's son. He's this savant on the spectrum who somehow summons the Predator from, yeah. like, a, like a uh, an alien artifact in yeah. his basement. Um, he's... That's also sort of out of touch and out of its depth. I uh, yeah, I we yeah. got we I really want to dig into this because it was one of my main problems with the story is it, or main problems with the characters and a little bit of the story the way that starts to play out is uh I think you're you're absolutely right on Thomas Jane um who plays the the guy who has Tourette's oh yeah it implies, it implies that Tourette's is that it's it's like the same thing it's it's almost uh. You know, there's the the South Park episode. That's what I was just thinking about, and that was like 2007. Yeah, and they were what what they were commenting on was yeah. like they were being subversive. They were just like, "Hey, by the way, Tourette's is not, like is not just screaming obscenities every five yeah. seconds. It's it's an actual disorder that deserves to be taken seriously." And um, Shane Black plays it totally for comedy. So, as you said, so out of touch. Jacob, the whole Jacob Tremblay thing, I feel so bad for that kid because, again, he's a kid. Like, he's going to do what the director tells him to do. And it makes you. Now, I'm not going to pretend like I'm an expert on, um, you know, people who are on the spectrum. There's so many different ways that people on the spectrum, like, engage with the world. It's so complicated and so new like you have to have a such a level of nuance to portray and to write a character who is on the autistic spectrum because there is no one it's a spectrum there's no one way to be on the spectrum some people have um sensory issues some people don't make eye contact or things like it's like so many different things and to try and boil that down into one character is like almost irresponsible and you would think that with shane black like does Shane Black think that having Asperger's just means you have to wipe your nose a lot? <laughs> like, I mean, that's essentially fuck? like everyone's character. Like that was, the, that's the thing. Everyone in this movie has a defining quirk. And that was essentially that was that the little kid's quirk is that he wipes his nose a lot and doesn't have friends. Yeah. And it's, I mean, and even, even, even divorced from like the, the, eth- the ethical implications, it's just, 
it's so it, it's just it's really poor writing and it's you can tell that they're using everything as a, a, such a surface level MacGuffin. It's just everything. That's a good way to put it. I mean, I feel like everything in this movie was just a pile of MacGuffins that were sort of yeah. scattered around and then it didn't really just, come to fruition. Really matters. Yeah. And then it's set up for a sequel. And I don't know how long we're going to have to wait to get the second one because this one didn't do too, that well. Um, yeah. It's neck and neck with the box office numbers for Predators. And that was 2010. So mm-hmm. with inflation, that's made notably more. Mm hmm. Um, I, I mean, maybe we'll need, wait another eight years. Maybe we'll wait another 16. Either way, I don't think I'll necessarily be waiting for the next one. No. Uh, well, and that sucks because I, I love this franchise. And um, yeah, all we need, uh, I think what, what it needs is just something fresh. And yeah. that's what it's always been is like bring in something fresh. I will. Predators is not my favorite of, of, uh, of all of them, but it at least flipped the script a little bit and still paid paid its dues to the to the original. So mm-hmm. I thought, you know, if they brought bo- if they brought back uh, Nimrod Antal, I would not be upset. And Robert Rodriguez, I think they kind of had a handle on an end of vision for what they wanted the franchise to look like, po- you know, going forward. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, the Predator. I think I, I'd maybe watch it if it were on cable because there's some decent kills. You get some pretty cool kills. Uh, just, like we won't have to go into it here, but like also the CGI. I was just thinking about that. There's that a, film, especially towards the climax. There's some very underrated, some very underrendered CGI that horrifying. It's yeah, and it's not in a good way. It's no. uh, it reminded me of the Final Destination. The fourth one, yeah. <laughs> it, I was like, "Oh God, this is so." Uh, it's and again, it's not. It's not a camp fest. Like it's at least it no. tries to have a, a, a semblance of drama. It's it, it, it pretends to be tethered to reality, and yeah. it's just it's it's so tonally inconsistent, and it's very unaware of its place in the franchise and in 2018 film as a whole. So mm-hmm. it's just a waste. Yeah, at least the, the practical effects that were there did look really good. Yeah, sure. No, I mean it's it's looked really great. Yeah, I mean, and again, it's like I enjoy seeing Olivia Munn do her thing. I like Travante Rhodes, who's adult Chiron from Moonlight. He's also in it. He's also, I mean, he's just super charismatic. So I enjoyed watching him again. Yeah, he just he he went for it. um and yeah. Tidbit second that's the second actor from Moonlight to be in a Predator film. Oh, you're right. Mahershala Ali was in Predators. Predators. So maybe we get young Chiron yeah. into the next one. I, I would not be upset if um, Barry... Uh, Barry oh Jenkins does, Barry the Jenkins does the next Predator. I'd fucking... I'd go apeshit. I'd oh, be, be amazing. Oh, you, oh, can you imagine how good that cinematography would be? Oh. We're gonna, let's let's pitch it. Let's, pitch let's do it. it. Yeah, let's make a pitch. Uh, come on, 20th century. Well, now Disney, 20th century Fox oh, yeah. slash Disney. Let's let's get off the ground. Um, let's go to a movie that you really enjoyed. I loved your write up on it. Uh, thought you really captured uh, this this film, which is going to, for the people who see it. I feel like is either going. You're either going to be like, this is fucking it. This is 2018 in a nutshell. Or you're just going to be like, this is depraved and like accomplishes nothing. Yeah. Uh, Assassination Nation. 
Yeah, I, I like people listening won't. They can't see it. I have a massive grin on my face right now. <laughs> oh, I love this movie. You're you're right. Upset at all? It was you were. <sighs> it was dripping from the page in terms <laughs> of like how much uh, you really bit into this movie and just you like. It's it's like having a nice, really rich, savory piece of pie. Like you know, it's yeah, and it is really just, digging into it. It is okay. So just to give a really quick setup, this is um, written and directed by Sam Levinson. This is his second feature. Um, he also happens to be Barry Levinson's son. Damn. Um, yeah, did you know that? No, I had no idea. So he's like a little bit of royalty there. Yeah, so he's he's Barry Levinson's son. This is his second feature. I didn't see his first one. Um, and it follows four high school girls who are implicated when their small town known as Salem um, gets attacked by an anonymous hacker who starts leaking everyone's texts and emails. Mm-hmm. And everyone's emotional vulnerabilities are just out for the picking. And everyone just completely loses their mind. Um, it starts off with the mayor getting hacked. Um, people find out that he is uh, into dressing up as a woman and uh, hiring male escorts. Um, and because he's super conservative, it makes him look like a hypocrite. And then he kills himself. And then the principal gets hacked. And then it gets worse and worse from there. Um, it's a it's a concept that is as ugly as it is absurd and it's treated with an equal amount of honesty. Um, but it's also very aware of itself and it's aware of its place within the zeitgeist. And it knows that that position is largely reactionary. And so it be, it just goes on to blow up the mundanities of suburban life from the inside out. And I think it's really fascinating to look at this movie in terms of how it, positions itself within like both just as you know satire on a more you know traditional level but also how it also establishes itself in the confines of a film or just media as a whole i mean there are some jokes in terms of where they're not necessarily breaking the fourth wall but they're sort of brushing against it um you know the stylization of it quickly establishes that this is a film where the characters don't necessarily live in our world. They live in like an expressionistic take of our world. Um, like there's like, there's a scene early on where someone like snaps their fingers and it cues a music montage um, and stuff like that. It's very, it's very knowing and it, it's their direct inspirations. You know, they're shown watching a seventies Japanese girl gang film. And that's, you know, very much, you know, tied into the, the final 30 minutes, which are brutal. Um, yeah, but- I feel like, I feel like there's some, uh, it's, it's a movie that is proud of its style. Um, yeah. And that's going to, that I've seen a lot of people get pissed at that. Cause uh, I mean, the main, this is definitely a movie where it's the type of film where people who don't like it say, um, well, one of the main complaints is people say, Oh, it's trying way too hard, which I think is not, I don't agree because it's a movie that's meant to replicate the internet in all of its ridiculousness. It's like if the comment section came, became sentient and then got access to firearms and tried to murder everyone who was not, you know, cisgender and straight and white and male. Yeah. And it's, 
it's about being a woman and not dying while doing that. Yeah. Um, I've also yeah. seen some people paint it as a revenge film. I also don't see that. It's more of a survivor survival narrative. Yeah. Um, I, that's that's more what it, I would agree with that more. Yeah, and it's it's so it's deeply upsetting. It's oddly beautiful. Um, it's hypnotic. There's a lot of it. It has a lot of inspiration from older films um, in how it edits together scenes. Um, I also mentioned the expressionistic lighting and a lot of seemingly non sequitur shots that are strung about to create more of a tone. There's a lot of triptych. Um, you know, screen editing mm-hmm. that's earlier on, and it's this beautiful synthesis of trash culture and artsiness that I just ate up, and it's it's a lot. Yeah, I what I really liked about it, and um, you know, I people I, it might be a surface level comment to make, but it's it's Tarantino esque in that mashup of high and low art in a sense. And, and I really, and I really hate the, the duality of high art versus low art, because sure. I think uh, they both add something. And lo- like you mentioned the girl gang movies of like the seventies and stuff. I'm like, dude, watch those movies and respect the motherfucking craft because <laughs> it is those, those movies. Yeah. Are problematic, very of their time. But in terms of shooting, action and shooting shooting women in movies they were really pushed the envelope in a lot, a lot of ways it's the same way that like when you look at black exploitation mm-hmm. you have to look at it in its context of what it did in turn not necessarily the movie itself but like how does black exploitation move things forward and uh you know i feel like there's that tarantino-esque like we're gonna really go for a heightened world Mm-hmm. And go for a world that uh, where everybody is like pretty witty and like, um, you know, always kind of has the right moment and the right thing to say because it knows it's a movie um, and it knows that it's like it's kind of like inherently absurd, especially with the premise. Yeah. Uh, and it's it's, you know, the you mentioned the whole Salem thing and, you know, mm-hmm. the. The, the very on the nose sort of uh, commentary, but fuck it. I like those kind of movies. Like mother is a fantastic fucking movie. And yeah. one of the biggest complaints was that it's so on the nose. I'm like, yeah, that's the point. It's punk rock as fuck. Like it's right in your face. Like, yeah. That's the thing. I don't have a problem. If something is so on, the, like if something is so on the nose, I have no problem with that. If it's, if it has enough texture and if mm-hmm. it has enough, energy behind it and this movie is bursting at the scenes with energy yes. um yes. and it's and i like in terms of the writing i really enjoy, like this this is another thing people like it goes to the fact that a lot of people either love this movie or hate it with a passion because they think it's obnoxious but i think i also really enjoy stylized dialogue yes. and this movie has incredibly stylized dialogue um it's the sort of thing where when characters have their moments um, to speak either like to speak their minds or to stand up to someone else, they're almost, they speak in monologues, you know, they speak in status updates and they speak in tweets. It's almost like everything it's, and again, it's, it is the internet personified and it's it's sensory overload. um, But it's also, really bewitching to behold and it's just so 
it is so of its time for better and for worse. Yeah. Do you think, do you think it's a movie that people will be able to revisit uh, a year, five years from now and maybe gain some perspective or will it just lose its, lose its edge? Cause as you said, it's very, it is very of its time. Like this is a movie that is uh, burdened with its technology um, yeah. you know, that's, that's always a problem when it comes to revisiting movies and, uh, like you can, you go back and you watch like, I don't know, any Tom Clancy movie of, sure. of, of like the nineties, which really doesn't date itself necessarily in terms of events, but like it, one of the ways it dates itself is just like the, uh, comparatively like fucking primitive technology. So right. I wonder if. Um, or if like there's a movie that involves MySpace or flip phones, yeah, it just gets into your subconscious. So, is it? it do you think this is a movie like off the top of my head, like Super Bad is a movie that you know relies on early 2000s technology, but you don't give a shit? Like you're just you're too enthralled with what's happening. Do you think Assassination Nation gets to that point? Well, yeah, I mean it's perfectly fine because it's well, I mean also going off of that, I. I always look at movies as a time capsule of when they came out. Mm-hmm. This is so of its time that whether or not it ages it is that's beside the point. Yeah, it's irrelevant. Um, yeah, because it's it came out now. It's reflective of now and the now of when it came out is 2018. Um, but even if it didn't age wonderfully, which I'm sure it won't, nothing does. Um, it establishes its own world incredibly quickly and effectively and it uses a lot of you know baseline american iconography to make it to establish its world both in terms of you know true like true emotion and also in terms of irony so alongside all the you know social media and phones and sexting you also have things like american flags and you have a lot of um, colonial houses and, um, you know, perfect little white blonde families and stuff like that. It's a lot of stuff that's timeless, but it also, it's, you know, repackaged into something that works perfectly for the time. Obviously not perfectly. I think that there are definitely some, some, some brief moments where I became too aware Mm -hmm. of that. It was talking to me. Um, but I didn't really mind because I was so on board with it. And there was, there's also these, these actors do some really great work here. A lot of them are relatively unknown. Um, I would say one of the most known people in the movie is Joel McHale. He has a supporting role as the, um, he, yeah, I'm not going to get into that. He, uh, is one of the more known people, but, um, some of the younger people in the movie who play the four young women, I want to give them credit. Um, one of them is Odessa Young, who is a pretty unknown Australian actor. Uh, she's great as the the sort of lead girl, Lily. Um, and then there's Abra, who is uh, like an underground like trip-hop pop artist mm-hmm. uh, in real life. And then there's uh, Suki Waterhouse, who's done a couple stuff. She was in The Bad Batch last year. Um, and then Hari Neff, who I had never seen before, but she's so charismatic and I really want her to get a lot of work out of this. I think, I think she will. Um, oh, this is, she's so charismatic in this and I absolutely just fell in love with her. Um, and it's, she also, 
this, and again, this also goes back to the, it's also nice to see a character, to see a movie, you know, cast a trans person in a trans role. Um, and the movie does really, does some really great work with implementing people's personal identities into who their characters are, but not making it their defining traits. Um, right. You know, right. it, because all of these things have to do with how they interact with the world around them. Um, and the movie makes that increasingly clear as the film goes on. Um, but they're never tokenized. Um, they're just there. Yeah. there. I mean, it's a, it's a movie that, you know, I hope it stays polarizing because polarizing movies are more fun to talk about. Yeah. Um, and it's, I, I mean, I'm really curious to see how this, how this plays out in the next couple months or years, just because it's neon. The distributor bought this at Sundance for ten million, which blows my mind. Yeah, that they paid ten million for this because I don't think anyone would ever expect this to be financially successful. I mean, it has been out for two weeks now, and it's made one point seven million nationwide. I mean, they also decided to open it nationwide, and it had one of the worst openings for a nationwide release of the year. Um, And I I think with the purchase of 10 million um, companies like neon, they, I mean, they, they, as a relatively young um, distribution house, Mm -hmm. um, they're trying to find their footing in terms of uh, what does a neon movie mean? Yeah. And, you know, cause let's look at their, you know, main competitor, A24. Yeah. Everybody knows when A24 movie means. Like, mm-hmm. um, and even people that don't give a fuck about, like, art, you know, I guess, quote unquote, art house, mm-hmm. it's uh, A24 has really put their mark on the indie with a capital I sort of market. Yeah. And when people see that, they're like, oh, especially now that they, you know, we're, they're looking at, they've got Oscar noms, they've got, so much shit. They got uh, Oscar wins. They got a best yeah, picture win with Moonlight. Yeah, they've got they've got it all now. So I think Neon is going for the what is the Neon aesthetic, and it seems to be <laughs> Neon aesthetic. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, they're I like their a lot of their movies are very Neon. They're not lying about that with the uh, Bad Batch and Angry Goes West and Revenge but, and. Yeah, I think they're get they're doing they're doing a lot better. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they're getting to that point. I think. They're, go- they're I mean, Neon. That's they. They were started by uh, the dude behind Al- Alamo Draft House, right? Yeah, Tim League, who's also a kind of a trash person. Um, mm-hmm. well, I hate everyone. Jeez. Um, <laughs> yeah, he's there's. Uh, if you want to be angry, Google him and his his uh yeah, his scandal. Um, but guy. yeah, it was a uh, yeah. It's it was co-founded. I believe by Tim league who is behind Alamo draft house and their first one of their, they really first came on the scene just last year, but they had colossal. They had, um, I loved. I loved yeah, I, I like colossal. Um, they had the bad batch, which disappointed me, but then they also had some other stuff. They had risk, which was the join the song documentary. Um, they had I Tanya last year. They had Ingrid goes West, which was one of my favorites of last year. Um, and so I think they're getting a better foothold on what they're doing. Yeah, they're getting there. They're just being able to market that. I mean, they also had revenge earlier this year, which is great. Yeah, Um, that is brutal, but that also makes for a wonderful double feature with this movie. 
Yeah, and maybe that's where uh, Neon is going, is going to mm-hmm. be the almost the B-movie little sister to A24, which mm-hmm. is good for me because I'm, I'm a person that when it comes to movies... I have this strange like fetish for cruelty. Like if people are going to be cruel, they might as well do it on like in a movie where no one's actually getting hurt. Oh, sure. Like, and, and I find film to be a fantastic way to explore those, um, kind of socially unacceptable parts of our personality. And that's why this movie works so well is because that's exactly what this is. This is like, let's watch, let's look at, let's hold up the mirror and see how fucking sickening people can be. Um, and it doesn't exclude the main characters either because oh, yeah, there are some parts of them are just horrible. Yeah. I mean this, I, I'll speaking of double features. I would also watch this with true romance. <laughs> which is, I think, another movie about cruel people, but you know, you you latch onto the people who are the least cruel and, and who are doing what they do to just kind of get by. They're they're responding to cruel they're responding to cruelty and and anger and violence, not so much generating it in some ways, but um I wanna end I wanna end the discussion on Assassination Nation with uh the the line and it's in the trailer as well where they're all all the girls are sitting around and they're talking about like the concept of privacy and uh god what's the line i had it in my head for so long because we carried the trailer for like four weeks in this theater oh was it um with bella thorne yeah, a like, super. Oh yeah, we've got a super gross uh, porn history. Yeah, it's like I have like a super gross porn history, like a million nudes, like life altering shit. Talk about everyone at this school. That um, line specifically cracks me up every time because it's so true. Like you know, people even even when um, like uh, you and I were in high school, roughly probably roughly about the same time. Uh, you know, like the late 2000s early 2010s mm-hmm. um that was you knew that person like you knew the people who had life-altering shit talk and it's just so funny to hear that in a movie i'm like i really relate to this, this is great yeah so, and i yeah and it's i also like one more thing i also uh think it's funny a lot of comparisons i've been seeing are to the purge which i think this is what the purge tried to do um and it's this second half of this movie is, Oh my God, it's bonkers. Um, but I, another comparison that I also have made is to Heather's just in the, the, like the yeah. bitchiness and the verbal gymnastics that it has and the, and the, the sharpness. But a, a thing I feel like a lot of people aren't picking up on is the fact that unlike Heather's or a lot of these teen movies, there isn't a cattiness alongside like in between the, the, the female leads like they they fight for themselves and they fight for their friends they're not yeah. turning on each other you know it's it's i was rooting for them and i it, i i i mean i've seen it twice now i absolutely loved it um it's a it's, little bit like thoroughbreds in that sense oh yeah oh i love thoroughbreds yeah that was a movie that took me at least three watches to really get i was like because uh, i've you know sidebar like that was a movie that was i feel like it's really popular right now to market things as the next heathers like uh, yeah I like i've been noticing a lot of movies have just been 
ilking Heather's like crazy. Yeah, they're having like Heather's is having a marketing renaissance right now, which is really strange. Yeah, I'm just like, dude, uh, watching Thoroughbreds, I'm like, no, this is it's like Heather's insofar as like there's teens and they kill somebody. Yeah, like, but that's not what Heather's is like. Assassination Nation is is like you said, more Heather's. Yeah, in that sense, where it's that wittiness and everything like that. Um, we'll jump over to uh, quickly Mandy, which is a movie that uh, people are going pretty gaga over, at least visually. People are like, this is a crazy movie. And also, um, I feel like Nick Cage. Are we back? Nick Is Nick Cage back? Is- I... Sure. I mean, I I feel like every that kind of almost happened with Kickass in 2010. I know because he was so good in it. I was and like, then it wow, didn't really lead to anything else. Um, no, I mean he, and also I think it's funny. Mandy, a, a lot of people are talking about it in terms of like, oh, Nicolas Cage goes batshit crazy, and that's really not until the last half hour of this two hour movie. Yeah. Um, and for a lot of it, he's not in it, or it's comparatively subdued to what he usually does um but it's i this is um like penos cosmatos the director is very much interested in making another you know trip art neon coded um hallucinatory sort of just experience as opposed to an actual narrative film and I really admire how it so quickly establishes, you know, if you're not going to like this movie, you're, you're going to know in the first 20 minutes, mm-hmm. maybe first 15. Um, and I really admire that it doesn't pretend to be more um, than it is, which is almost like an art installation of a film. <laughs> um, it's, you know, it, 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 uh, it appeals to a very specific subset of people and um, if you're part of it, awesome. You're going to be all for it. If you're not, I mean, you can't, but you still can't dismiss the artistry of it. Um, it's kind of two movies, which I also don't think a lot of people will be expecting just in terms of it. The first hour specifically is very slow. Um, I mean, but I was, I was in awe of the artistry. It's very hypnotic. It's that sort of uh, like Argento pastiche, um, sort of stuff like that I completely eat up. Um, but then once it actually goes nutty um, about, you know, two thirds of the way in, um, it's the kind of thing that people are more or less looking forward to. Yeah. I feel like it was one of those movies that may have been marketed a little bit heavy on one aspect. Mm-hmm. Um, it's It reminded me a little bit of It Comes at Night, where sure. people went in thinking they were just going to get a uh, Nicolas Cage screaming fuck fest, and that's like largely not the movie, which is fine. I was okay with that. But um, <clears throat> some people that were expecting a little bit more of a... Uh, you know, Nicolas Cage losing his shit. If you want that, there is a movie out there. There, There's multiple, but if you want a recent Nick Cage movie where he just goes batshit, there's Mom and Dad, mm-hmm. which I think was a really fun one. I, I was like, 
this is dope. Uh, it's it's at least interesting, and Selma Blair's in it. But yeah, Mandy, um, I liked I like what you said about the uh, broad strokes of Argento. Um, there's that, and and I could definitely see this director moving into something more like Gaspar Noy or however you say that guy's name. <laughs> yeah, um, I could see that. Or like Enter the Void, where it's like, don't worry about the fucking narrative. Like, it's not really that important. Like, just go on this crazy trip. Yeah. I, I liked Mandy. I thought it was... I, I, I had to rent it at home. I had to, like... Oh, yeah. Because I, I saw it at a midnight showing at the Music Box in their smaller theater. Um, mm-hmm. And I was just like, oh, I need to just see this damn thing because it's already been out for two weeks. And I just... Yeah. I, I missed it at every turn. I missed it at Cannes. Um, and then I didn't see it when it came out for like two weeks here in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, the, also my main takeaway for it has to do again with, you know, the technical artistry of it. I really love how it bridges the gap between, you know, like art house and grind house. Um, there's a really s- subtle, but consistent, um, you know, bridging the gap between those two aesthetics but mainly in terms of its color choices, almost everything is like a primary color scheme. Um, And so you have a lot of red for rage, a lot of blue for intimacy, and then a lot of yellow to kind of tie it down to the ground. Um, And that's like, I, there are some scenes that get a bunch of splashes of green and maybe that is for the most part, as far away from the primary color scheme as you'll go. But it's also really like, I mean, it's it's beautiful aesthetically but it's also really well done in how it like the 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 pagan subcultures that it's you know heavy metal inspirations you know derive from to an extent it also has its own sense of alchemy just in the simplicity of its visuals yeah and that creates something that is also just sort of breathtaking at points and it's simplistic and it's really hypnotic. And I, I really, really enjoyed it for the first hour or so. Um, I mean, it did start to lose me once it started to go into some of the more the more nutty aspects of it. I feel like it didn't necessarily just choose a lane in terms of how silly it wanted to be. Um, there, there are like some bursts of, you know, batshit nuttiness. Yeah. Um, but I feel like at points they don't milk it as much as they could have. So it, it, it kind of dilutes both ends, both edges of the sword in that way. It's a, it's a very hype film. Like, yeah. Um, the, the hype surrounding it is almost more fascinating at times than the movie itself. But I think it's, I think it's pretty solid. I was, I was happy. I was glad to really, I was really glad to see it. And I'm really glad, um, that Kate that Nick Cage is still willing to do those sorts of roles. Uh and I just find him to be a fucking fascinating person. Like yeah. he did a GQ thing for like on YouTube where he talked about all his roles. That guy oh, goes yeah. that guy goes fucking deep. Like he yeah. he's not an idiot. Like people think no, he's, no, he's crazy not. or stupid or something. I'm just like, no, this guy is a fucking artist. Oh, like, he obviously knows what he's doing, and that's what I I'm I mean I'm I'm I mean, I'm also sure that he always knew what he was doing all along, but it's especially fascinating to watch his career take this turn where he is point blank, you know, self-referential. But I mean, it also shows that self-referentialness doesn't have to be making everything a camp fest. I mean, there is, there is genuine emotion to his performance here. 
And I do think it's admirable. Um, I mean, there are also moments where you could make a couple really fun gifs of his just crazy face. <laughs> there's like one, there's one scene where he like, I, I think it's like he stabs someone and then there's like a shard of glass and he like does an entire line of cocaine off of the shard of glass and then makes like a <gasps> face. Yeah. And I was, and everyone in the theater just went, yeah. Fuck like, like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Fuck yeah, dude. Like it's that sort of <laughs> stuff, but it still works. The music I'm, box viewing audience at midnight, you know, exactly yeah, it's exactly who they are. And it was that. And also when I went in there in the main theater, they were showing the midnight screening of the room. So I'm sure oh, just that Christ. entire building was just about to implode. But a lot of a lot of dudes with beards. Yeah, I was one of them. <laughs> no, ain't nothing wrong with that. Um, all right, we're gonna have to go into a little bit of a lightning round here. So, um, I'll just name one of these movies. You give me maybe like two two sentences about it, and sure. and whether or not you recommend it. Uh, White boy Rick. Uh, I really enjoyed the, the, like the, there's a, a technical proficiency that I really like about this in terms of, it has a very gritty, uh, you know, tactile color scheme. Everyone in this movie just feels so cold and it feels dirty and immersive. Um, the performances are typically well done. It's nice to see Belle Pally from Dead Every Teenage Girl get more work. I wish her career was more out there than it is because she is fantastic. Um, but it doesn't seem entirely, uh, educated or up to date with what, with the, the themes it's trying to touch on, such as, uh, the criminal justice system or white privilege, uh, just sort of, um, tosses those into the forefront and then moves on. Um, so it feels kind of shallow. Um, it feels, do we, it? Do we wait for it on, uh, wait for it on Redbox or something? Yeah, I mean, if you're interested in that sort of thing and a, a odd true crime story, then you could watch it eventually. But it's also something you could just read about. Yeah, don't necessarily need to rush out to the theater to see White Boy Rick. No. Um, let's see. The House with a Clock in Its Walls. From the director I, of Cabin Fever. Yeah, the director of Hostel and <laughs> the Death Wish remake. Um, it's so odd. I They... I, it's funny also when they marketed this, I had no idea that he directed this until like the week before it came out. Oh, you um, know, they were playing it down. Cause oh, like, I know. And I was like, the death wish. I know. And then someone's like, Oh yeah, it's Eli, Eli Roth. And I was like that Eli Roth. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I actually like, I know you liked this a lot more than I did. I, for a while I thought it was okay, but I also f- was kind of disappointed just in terms of Eli Roth, I still feel like just doesn't know how to work with his actors. So it has Jack Black doing his Jack Blackness, um, which is which is nice, but it's also indistinguishable from his previous work. Um, it has a lot of stiff character, uh, a lot of stiff child acting, which is unfortunate because the main kid here makes for a likable protagonist. It's just that he's so he's very aware that he's acting. Yeah, um, and same with also Sonny Soljic, who plays like the kid who wants to he wants to be friends with. He was in Killing of Sacred Deer, and he's going to be in mid nineties later this year. Um, he also, I, I mean, I I wasn't there for it, um, but I mean, the main thing is it it tries to go for that sort of um, is that like Spielbergian that Spielberg like eighties heyday Amblin Entertainment stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but it feels I felt like it was closer to the mid two thousands, and it's like 
reliance on shoddy CG and, you know, offbeat, you know, period detail that doesn't really mesh all that well. Um, yeah, yeah it, it, it felt kind of shoddy. I was I was okay with it. I went in expecting nothing special and got something that was like, I don't know, slightly better than the average children's movie. Um I I mean like compared compared to like I don't know, so many crappy kids movies I've seen this year and I I've I'm kind of like shocked at how many crappy kids movie how many kids movies I've seen period. I thought it was all right. I thought it was. I thought it was. You could take your kids to it, and they'd probably enjoy it and be like, "Oh, it's so wacky! Oh, Jack Black, what's yeah. he doing? Like all that kind of stuff." <laughs> it's. I. I think um, maybe Eli Roth has to atone for some of his sins in terms of directing uh, just yeah. a truly socially damaging version of Death Wish. Yeah, that was like, just really, really rude and ill-timed. Um, yeah, Fahrenheit eleven nine coming from everybody's favorite provocateur documentarian. Yeah. I mean, whether or not you hate him, Michael Moore is back. Uh, whether you love him or hate him, I like you, I'm not even going to try to be objective with this. Cause I agree with his politics almost to a T like yeah. as a person, he irks me. I think he's kind of, an, I have several issues with him as a person, but I mean, in, Fahrenheit 11.9 is a very well-made documentary in terms of it is a page turn of a documentary, even though it is all of two hours and it is frustrating in that it exhibits his usual issues as a filmmaker. Um, mostly in terms of he has a lot of, you know, ideas that he's going for that are pretty scattershot, but they're especially frustrating because he could have easily rearranged all of his topics to make for a more cohesive narrative. Right. Um, and it's also especially kind of obnoxious because these are all of the issues that he has made. There's, these are all the problems that he's had in the past. And so it's either a lack of self-awareness or like a resistance towards growing as a filmmaker. Um, but either way, I'd say the latter when you're, when literally the best documentary you ever made was the first documentary you ever made. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, he probably sees no uh, reason to change his tactics. I mean, even I remember when Fahrenheit 9-11 came out and um, what was the other one where he like takes over the world? What it was like where to invade next? Sicko? Yeah, where to invade next. Yeah. Yeah. I was just where like, wow, these are both visually and narratively almost exactly the same as Bowling for Columbine, which is yeah. a movie that like probably is taught in documentary classes just as like a moment for the documentary genre. Cause he yeah. really brought it to the people. He was just like, Hey, it's not all fucking Richard Attenborough <laughs> you know, describing what meerkats are doing. It's like, we can do something really socially salient. Yeah. And I would argue that, um, 2018, which I think has been a banner year for documentary filmmaking. Oh yeah. Um, you can trace all those influences and in storytelling styles back to uh, Bowling for Columbine and what it did in 1999, 2000, like what, how it cracked open people's interest for documentaries and this thirst for people to, um, to watch documentary film and be legitimately interested and use all these kind of 
uh, more traditional narrative storytelling techniques that you see in regular Hollywood movies, but now it's actually telling you a true story um, Mm -hmm. and telling you some certain facts Um, when it comes to, so, so his voice in this is basically the same as it's ever been. Um, Yeah, but it's also just as intriguing and it's so entertaining to watch. And it's, it is, despite the fact that it has structural issues, it's very well paced. I mean, it is all two hours. I'm pretty sure it's over two hours. Um, But it's a page turner of a documentary and it's typically impassioned. Um, You know, a lot of genuinely fascinating points that a lot, like a lot of people make the, you know, Trump compared to Hitler, you know, you know, uh, a lot of people compare uh, Trump to Hitler. This one does that too, but it also makes a lot more points that are a lot more in depth. Um, And it's on top of that, I think it's, he does also have a little bit more of an even ground in terms of, um, the people that he's shitting on. I mean, like no one gets away from this unscathed. He, he goes after Hillary. He goes after the DNC. He goes after Trump. He goes after, um, Rick Snyder. He goes after a ton of people, um, with equal plumb and that sort of just like scorched earth. Um, you know, let's start everything again is, is refreshing and cathartic. Yeah. I I like Michael. I mean, again, as a filmmaker, we have to, you know, I'm I'm definitely a person that's just like, I can remove myself from um, a person's work and their personality and like their actions necessary, you know, just by necessity. Otherwise you're basically not going to be able to watch movies anymore because a lot of filmmakers are just bastards. They're fucking Mm -hmm. assholes. Um, uh, you know, I could never watch Vertigo again because Alfred Hitchcock was a manipulative piece of shit. But yeah, uh, I do. I I'm glad that he's still relatively in the game. I just feel like so many people have this opinion of him as just mm-hmm. being like a shit stirrer that they don't want to watch it and they don't even want to engage with it. And um, like. Uh, I feel like some people would look at him as almost a uh, liberal Ben Shapiro in a sense. And I know mm-hmm. that's that's like a little bit of a stretch, but it's that kind of shitster. I know more than you. I, you know, yeah, I'm the fucking man. But like Michael, Michael Moore, he's he's put in a lot more time and he he's like he stands. Ex- he's he knows exactly what he's about. And I don't think he's the type of person that would, if someone were to challenge him and someone were to be like, you know, I didn't like your movie. He probably would be like, yeah, dude, that's fine. Like, yeah, I really don't care. I, I got my message out there. It's just a medium for him. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, let's see. Is there somewhere we want to end? Uh, you know, I'm really curious. Cause I have not, I haven't seen this one. Uh, the sisters brothers. Coming from yeah. Joaquin Phoenix, John C. Riley, Western. Yeah. Um, so this is I'm probably gonna butcher this name, Jocks Odiard, um, who did Rust and Bone. Um, this is first of all, I want to point out that uh if you're gonna go see this based on the trailers, rethink that. Don't get oh, me wrong, yeah. you should see it. I like it. But this is these are some of the most misleading trailers in recent memory, just in terms of they build it as a snappy, self-aware, um, comedic western. This is a slow burn. And yeah. it is it is very slow. It is pacing, you know, reminiscent of 
the you know the 40s and 50s westerns that very stoic um reserved like has moments of right you know candor that sort of breaks apart the you know the the desert that it finds itself in but either way it is very slow um a lot of times it's kind of hypnotic um but this is something with a lot of very sharp characterizations um it's you know it's very much rooted in the the tropes of the western genre but instead of treating them as sort of like um like a lot of you know reflective genre pieces which i feel like to an extent you could classify this as a reflective genre piece uh, unlike a lot of those movies this treats its tropes as like a like sufficient task or yeah. sufficient task um in terms of just a lot of you know all of its characters are doing things that will never be entirely fulfilled it's it has almost this balance between nihilism and redemption it's oddly touching um but it also i i don't think it completely sticks the landing it becomes a little bit pedantic just in terms of how quickly it's, its tone shifts yeah. um but it's really well shot um it was shot by benoit debbie who shot things like spring breakers and enter the void um this is a lot more tethered to reality work for the cinematographer but um you know there's a lot of evocative imagery here that is grounded by the the intimacy of its characters um so it's you know it's a fascinating watch i don't think it lands every single mark um but it's definitely something to check out all right matt sapola yay he's a (laughs) film critic at large can't stop him uh remind us all where we can find some of your reviews and where we can follow you on social media yeah, uh, so you can find uh, some reviews on uh, filmmonthly.com, and then you can find me on Twitter at Cipolla Matt. That's just C-I-P-O-L-L-A-M Matt. Um, and I'm also on Instagram, uh, Facebook, Letterboxd, um, all those things. Uh, yeah, I'm also going to be plugging along some other stuff. I have some other things that will be posted um, on other outlets within the month. Uh, so keep an eye out on those. I'll be plugging those on uh, the internet. Fantastic. Well, we'll make sure to keep up with you. And um, I want to leave this. Uh, when it comes to October, I love to do, I love to challenge myself. I watch 31 horror movies, mm-hmm. uh, one for each day. Sometimes I have to do double features to catch up and everything. Uh, are there any horror films that you are excited to see this month? Or uh, want, are you going to revisit this month? Um, well, I know I'm going to watch all the Scream movies again because I just love all the Scream movies. Scream 4 is crazy. Yeah, I really... I I did not see that movie when it came out and I know it's on Netflix, right? I I don't know when it came on in Netflix, but I saw it and I was just like, oh shit, I never saw this. The first... I I think we talked about this before. The first like five to ten minutes of that movie are just fucking insane. Yeah, I couldn't believe it. I love that. Also, um... There's a the music box. Anyone who knows me knows that I will forever stand up for Jennifer's body. <laughs> under under underrated classic of our time. I unironically love this movie. Um, the music box is playing it on 35 millimeter uh, at midnight on October 19th and 20th. So unless you want to be a loser, 
can <laughs> not see <laughs> the best. The, yeah, I mean, unless you don't want to see the best Diablo Cody script that she wrote, um, you should totally check that out. Uh, this is before Tully, of course. This is it was before Tully. Yeah, this is <laughs> after her Juno. After she won an Academy Award for Juno, she made the movie about uh, Megan Fox as a succubus killing boys. Um, it's so good. <laughs> I love it. I love yeah. it. Well, thank you so much, Matt. We'll talk to you real soon. This has been No Co Cinema here on WGM Plus. We're your guide to cinema here in the city of Chicago, and we will catch you all very soon.